morning, I'd invite you to open it up to Hebrews, the ninth chapter. Hebrews chapter 9. We'll find there the text that was read a few moments ago. I want to read it to us again. And if you're one of those to follow along, I'd encourage you to just keep Hebrews marked because we're going to return there extensively uh, later on in our lesson. But I'm really glad that Danny sang that song before we had our sermon. We didn't collaborate on this in any way, but Jesus saves. Jesus saves. That's really the theme of our lesson today, and I'd encourage you to keep that in mind. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11, the writer says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All of us are familiar with the Secret Service. Their primary job is to provide protection for the president and his family, foremost, but also for visiting dignitaries and to secure notable public events. Listen to this brief summary from their website of their mission, how they protect the president. In order to maintain a safe environment for the president and other protectees, the Secret Service calls upon other federal, state, and local agencies to assist on a daily basis. The Secret Service Uniform Division, the Metropolitan Police Department, and the U.S. Park Police patrol the streets and parks nearby the White House. The Secret Service regularly consults with experts from other agencies in utilizing the most advanced security techniques. The military supports the Secret Service through the use of explosive ordnance disposal teams and communications resources. When the President travels, an advanced team of Secret Service agents works with the host city, state, and local law enforcement, as well as public safety officials, to jointly implement the necessary security measures. That's obviously just a summary. It's not a detailed account. But it's fascinating to consider all of the preparations that take place when the president comes to visit your city. I think about when we lived in the Austin area on a couple of different occasions, President Obama visited, and the main effect it had on me was a tremendous traffic snarl because of all of these precautions that were in place. At one point, we were supposed to be leaving town to go to my parents. My parents live in Center, which is just north of here. And normally we would head out Highway 71 to the south of town there, go by the airport, and then go up to the east. But because traffic was so backed up towards the airport, because the president was in town, and he was going to be flying out, it was quicker for us to drive all the way up to the north, almost to Dallas-Fort Worth, and then to go over to the east. See, the point is, it's a big deal when the president comes to visit. In light of that, Imagine what it's like when the creator of the universe comes to visit. God wants to dwell with his people. 
He seeks a relationship with us. This goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. We're talking about the first few chapters of Genesis here. But Scripture also reveals to us that a holy God cannot dwell in the midst of a sinful and an unclean people. That's why when we look in the Old Testament, for example, you consider the camp of the Israelites. Now, God dwelt with His people, Israel, there in the wilderness. But He manifested that in the tabernacle. And then outside the tabernacle, there were walls, of course, to the tent or curtains. But there was a fence enclosing that. And then outside of that were the priests. And then outside of the priests were the twelve tribes in different courses. And then outside of that were those who were unclean and impure. They had to be kept outside the camp. Because it was all about the holiness of God there at the center. That's why, too, that only priests were allowed to enter into the tabernacle, into the holy place. And only the high priest was allowed to enter into the holy of holies, the most holy place, and that only once a year. You see, for a holy God to dwell with His people... Sin must be atoned for. Impurities must be cleansed. And so God provided a way to do just that. Not only through the Old Testament sacrificial system in general, but specifically through an event that was designed to remove that barrier that separated him from his people. Beginning on Tuesday, this Tuesday, at sundown, and extending throughout the day, Wednesday, until sunset, will be Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in all the year for Jews. Even secular Jews often attend synagogue on the Day of Atonement because it is so important to their cultural identity. Now, the roots of this day go back to regulations laid down in Leviticus chapter 16. And, of course, back then the ritual focused on a priest and on a sacrificial system. And what we have today differs a great deal with its periods of uh, intensive prayer and reading and fasting. But it's marked by special rites that are only used on the Day of Atonement shows its importance, its significance. And I want us to walk through Leviticus chapter 16 together this morning. I'm not going to read every single passage I reference. I'm just going to tell the story. And you'll find the passages on the screen behind me for reference. It's also worth noting that when we read through Leviticus 16, we don't have some of the specific details about how to carry out this ritual that we find in later times. By the time of the rabbis, we're talking here between the second century BC on to the destruction of the temple. The details were so significant, the instructions so meticulous that they had to ultimately record them. Uh, one whole division of the Mishnah, that is the written version of the oral law, is devoted just to how you keep the Day of Atonement. Now, this time period, of course, forms the background to the New Testament the days of Jesus, the days of the Hebrews, right? So from time to time when I go through this, I'm going to tell you how they kept it in Jesus' day, just as an elaboration of what we read specifically here in Leviticus 16. By New Testament times, 
the ritual began actually seven days before the Day of Atonement itself. The high priest was segregated. He was taken from his house and sequestered there in the temple because they didn't want him to accidentally become unclean in any way. If he did become unclean somehow, he would be unable to perform the ceremony. And so they appointed an alternate high priest just in case he accidentally defiled himself in some way. Throughout the week, he performed the standard everyday priestly duties to help acclimate himself. Uh, similarly, the night before the Day of Atonement, they brought the animals that had been selected to be sacrificed to him so that he might familiarize himself with them. On the third night and on the seventh night of the week, they sprinkled him with the ashes of a heifer to help cleanse him just in case, again, he'd accidentally become unclean. And furthermore, every day he was reading and studying the scripture and repeating the ritual to himself so that he didn't mess it up in any way when the day came. On the evening before, he had a light meal. Not a heavy one, so he wouldn't fall asleep because he was going to stay up all night long. The priest made sure of that. And he spent the whole night studying the scriptures. And in the morning, he immersed himself in water. That's what's laid out here in Leviticus chapter 16 and verse 4. Now, that's notable that he bathed his entire body because on other days, he was required only to wash his hands and his feet. By Jesus' day, this was the first of five immersions that he would undergo on the day. Ten times he would wash his hands and his feet because they wanted to be extra sure that they were thorough. He put on his golden robes and he offered the everyday burnt offering. And then it was time for the proceedings of the Day of Atonement proper to begin. He immersed himself again. And he changed clothes now from his golden robes into what we read here in verse number 4. A linen shirt, pants, sash, and a turban. You see, these were plain white. These are very different from those splendid ceremonial robes he normally wore. These are even more plain than the ordinary garments of an everyday priest. They wore a colored sash. His are com completely white. And the text doesn't say it, but we can imagine that these plain white garments and his body are designed to symbolize his purity, that he's completely clean here when he goes in and approaches the Lord. He then took a bull to offer. We find this in verse 6 and verse number 11. This bull for his own personal sins as well as for the sins of his own household. He laid his hand on the bull, he confessed his sins over it, and then he slaughtered the bull himself. The blood was drained into a basin and they gave it to another man to continually stir it. And then came the first moment of tension and excitement because the high priest entered the most holy place. Verse number 12. He shall take a censer full of coals from the fire, from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. 
He entered the Holy of Holies and he heaped up the incense here so that there would be a tremendous cloud that would obscure everything within. And we see here the reason not only for that, but the reason for all of this meticulous attention to detail so that he does not die. That most holy place, if you remember, was forbidden at all other times. You could go back to verse number 2 of this same chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. This is the place where God manifested his presence over the mercy seat on the ark of the covenant. And some have thought this cloud was to hide Aaron, to hide the priest from God because he was a sinner. I don't think that's the case here. I think the text indicates this was to hide God from him. It reminds us of what God says to Moses, Exodus 33 and verse 20, that no one shall see me and live. This is for Aaron's protection or the high priest's protection because of the holiness and the majesty and the glory of God. In the first century, he would then go out back into the holy place and he would pray. But he only did that briefly, the rabbi said, quote, lest he put Israel in terror. See, they understood that it was extremely dangerous for him to go into the presence of God. They didn't want there to be any delay because they'd start to worry. He took the blood, we read this in verse number 14, returned to the most holy place, and he sprinkled it on the mercy seat seven times. He counted, and it says that he would wield it like a whip. He dipped his finger in the blood, and he sprinkled it this way. Well, after offering that bull for himself and for his family, he turned his attention to the goat that was for the people's offering. We read this in verse number 8. Two goats were selected, and lots were cast over them. Two golden lots, otherwise identical, one marked for the Lord, the other marked for Azazel, were placed in a box. He shook them up, he drew them out, and placed them on one of the two goats at random. And he said over them, a sin offering for the Lord, without making any distinction between the two goats. Then he slaughtered the goat, we read in verse 15. He collected its blood and he did with it just the same way as he had with the bull, going in and placing its blood upon the mercy seat of the altar, or the ark, I should say. That completed all of his work inside the Holy of Holies for the day. Now back in the holy place, he sprinkled the blood of first the bull, then the goat on the veil, the curtain that separated the two places. Then he poured them together, the bull into the goat, then back into the original container, mixing them up completely. And he applied that mixed blood to essentially everything else there. You can read about this in verses 18 and 19. He sprinkled some of that mixture on the horns of the incense altar. He poured some at the western base of the altar. Finally, he sprinkled it on the altar and then poured some outside. After all this had been done, you understand, now the high priest had been cleansed of sin. The tabernacle, the place of worship, had been cleansed of its impurity, and an offering had been made for the sins of the people. And now he turned his attention to the goat for Azazel. 
your translation might say the scapegoat. And that's because this is a notoriously difficult word to translate. This is the only time that this word appears in Scripture. And it's unclear exactly what it means. Is it referring to the goat itself? That's how we're taking it when we translate it as scapegoat. Is it referring to complete destruction, presumably the sins? Is it referring to a, a rocky precipice? That doesn't make sense now, but hold that thought. It'll make sense in just a second. All of these are suggestions that have been offered. I'm inclined to think, if you note in verse number 8, the lots, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel, placed here in parallel, in contrast to one another, we're talking about another entity. That Azazel is another name here for the devil. And we're sending sin here back metaphorically to where it belongs, with him, and away from the people. Verse 21, Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness." You notice here he lays both of his hands on the goat when he makes the confession of the sins of the people. And that seems to be significant because if you read about the way the priest undertook their rituals every other time, it was always with one hand laid on the animal. And when they did that, it was to set this animal apart as the one to be offered for those sins. But here when he lays both hands upon the animal, it seems to symbolize transference. That is, the sins of the people are symbolically being transferred to the goat. As you notice there, it says that he shall put the sins that have been confessed on the head of the goat and send it away. You couldn't transfer sins to a normal sacrifice because you couldn't put it on the altar then. Remember this concern with cleanliness? That would defile the altar. You'd have something impure there. But this goat isn't going to be sacrificed. He's going to be sent away. He's removing sins from the people. So in other words, remember a sin offering for the Lord? It seems that both of these animals taken together were an offering for the sins of the people. One, a sacrifice for them. The other, to symbolize that their sins had been taken completely away from them. Now, by New Testament times, the goat wasn't simply released out into the wilderness. Someone special would be appointed, usually a member of one of the priestly families, to take the goat. And ten booths were established on the way out of Jerusalem, uh, each one half a Sabbath day's journey apart. And some leading citizen would be at each one of these booths, and the man leading the goat would be invited at each booth to eat and to drink something, and then they'd walk with him on to the next booth, so on and so forth. But no one walked with him from the last booth. He tied a scarlet cord around the horn of the goat, and he tied another around a boulder, and then he pushed the goat over the edge of a cliff. Rocky precipice, remember? That's why some people think it means that. And the goat would tumble down and be broken into pieces, killed, because they wanted to make absolutely sure that that goat with its defilement, with all their sins laid upon it, 
didn't wander back in and get mixed in with the flock anywhere. Once the scapegoat or the goat for Azazel was dead, uh, flags would be waved in the booths all the way back to Jerusalem, signifying that it had been completed. And the high priest, in the meantime, had finished all of his other sacrificial duties. He would go into the court of the women and he'd read from the law, from Leviticus chapter 16, as well as from other parts of Leviticus. That concluded the penitential part of the day, and the high priest would change back into his golden robes. He'd make other offerings. There were other things to do, and if we had more time, we could go into that at this point. But I think our our point about attention to detail here in all of this has been made. And at the very end of the day, he went home, and he had a feast for his friends. And the Mishnah records why he did that. As you see here, he threw a big party for his friends to celebrate that he came out of the service safely. The note at the end of the day was joy, that he was alive, that he survived. You see, they recognized that it was a dangerous thing for him to venture into the presence of God like this. He was risking his life. If everything was not done properly, he could die. And that's why we see in the New Testament period this attention to all the correct performance of ritual, down to the smallest detail. It's why they added on all of these other details so that they could make it exactly sure that there was no danger at all and that everything was done just right. And that's because there was no doubt about the seriousness of sin, no doubt about the holiness of God and the danger of approaching Him with sin. No doubt about the instructions he'd laid out for the removal of sin. So why have we looked at Jewish ritual today? Had a lengthy discussion of it. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, this is all pretty interesting, but I don't see what it means. Or or maybe you're sitting there thinking, this isn't interesting at all. (laughs) You're the type that wants to move on from this. I remind you of our passage at the outset from Hebrews chapter 9, and here is the point. It's simply this. Christ's saving work is pictured for us in the Day of Atonement. Hebrews writer, chapter 10, verse 1 says, the law was but a shadow of the good things to come. The Day of Atonement prefigures the crucifixion for us. On the cross... Jesus achieved what all those priests of the Old Testament were attempting to achieve every time, year by year by year, they repeated this same ritual. And there are three things I want us to note. First of all, Christ is our high priest. Christ is the high priest for Christians. Jesus was sacrificed for us, we know that. But unlike those animals, he offered himself voluntarily fully, freely, as high priest, as good shepherd. You can think about what he says, John chapter 10, verse 11. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The high priest on the Day of Atonement was the one mediator between God and man. He is the only one who was allowed to enter that most holy place. Only on that one day of the year. But now, Christ is the one mediator between God and humanity. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, He had to be made like His brothers in every respect 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The high priest entered only once a year. He never entered without blood. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse number 7 into the second only. He talks about in verse number 6 that the priest only could go into the first part of the tabernacle, but into the second part, only the high priest goes. And he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. It was an adventure for him to enter. That's what we've seen today. The outcome was always in doubt. He was taking his life in his hands, and it had to be attended by every precaution. The, the main precaution being that he had to offer blood so that he could go in there as payment to God. Only with that blood could he be cleansed from his sins. Only with the blood could he find acceptance from God. But Jesus is a greater high priest than Aaron. He didn't have to offer any sacrifice on his behalf because he was without sin. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but it was tempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin. He didn't need to offer a bull on his own behalf. And Christ entered the holy place, but, Hebrews 9 and verse number 12, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. That earthly high priest dealt only with an earthly tabernacle. But Christ, verse 11, went through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Or again, verse 24, Christ is entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So you see, the access... To God for the Jewish high priest was into this tiny little dark room that was only symbolic of where God lived. The access for Christ was into the throne room of God in heaven itself. Secondly, Jesus isn't only our high priest, he is our unblemished sacrifice. Hebrews 9 and verse number 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? His blood was sprinkled in the most holy place, as we read already in verse number 12. But his sacrifice was greater than the one that the priest of the Old Testament offered. It didn't need to be repeated year after year. It was once for all. And that sacrifice gave access to God for humanity that they had never enjoyed before. You know, we pointed out already, repeatedly, only the high priest got to go into the presence of God. Everyone else had to be content with access to God by proxy through the priest. No one else was allowed to enter directly into his presence. But Christ not only entered literally into the presence of God, his entrance there, his sacrifice, secured that same sort of access for all of his people. When he died, the veil of the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy, it was torn in half. 
it came down, symbolizing that everyone now has that direct access to God. We can all approach Him. And in fact, we read in Hebrews 10, verse number 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of the sacrifice of Christ, we can confidently and boldly stand in the presence of God. We can approach Him directly. And that brings us third and finally to the fact that Christ is the difference. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There were built-in weaknesses to that Old Testament system. There was an imperfect high priest offering unwilling animals for the sake of humans. There was still forgiveness offered, but it was all offered prospectively, looking forward to what Christ accomplished. What those animal sacrifices, particularly the ones of the Day of Atonement, couldn't accomplish, Jesus accomplished in His work, in His sacrifice. He secured eternal redemption. And He doesn't have to do that repeatedly. Chapter 9, verse number 25. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy places every year with blood not His own. For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly from the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus' sacrifice was once for all. And through it, his people are truly forgiven. Look at chapter 10, beginning verse 11. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. I know we've been swimming in some deep waters today, and this is maybe not the type of thing that we normally think about. But what I want us to take away is how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together as one big story of what God is trying to accomplish in the redemption of His people. God seeks a relationship with us. 
And God has provided the means for us to have that. The saving work of Christ is pictured for us in the Day of Atonement. Our sins separate us from God. And by ourselves, we have absolutely no hope of remedying that situation. But God, in Christ, has provided the way for us to live daily in His presence. Where the blood of animals was imperfect, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from every stain. Just as God provided a way for the Jews in the Day of Atonement, in Christ He's provided a way for all of humanity. Our Day of Atonement occurred at Calvary when Jesus hung on the cross and gave up His life for us. And all of those who avail themselves of what Jesus did have the great promise recorded in Hebrews 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Are you ready for that judgment? Christ has dealt with sin already. Have you availed yourself of that? Are you eagerly looking forward to His salvation? If not, I want to encourage you to come to Him today. Put your faith, your trust in Him. Turn to God in repentance. Confess that Jesus is Lord and be buried with Him in the waters of baptism. Have your sins washed away. Be added to His people. Have that access to God that Jesus provided through His death. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian. Maybe these are the sorts of things we don't typically think about. Maybe you've taken what Jesus has done for you as fundamental as it is for granted. We don't live the way that we ought in response. If you need to make changes in your life this morning, whatever your need may be, if we can help you in any way, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and while we sing. There's a call come rings o'er the rain.